0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, in our study in the book of Revelation, looking at chapter four, verses six to 11 today. So join Dr. Newfeld in a message entitled, Worthy is Our God.
1: I wanna talk about worship. Every once in a while, when we define what we mean when we talk about worship, I'll hear someone say, well, for the Christian, everything is worship. Whether we're in church or working at our jobs or eating the evening meal with our family, it's, let's all worship. And I think I know what people are saying when they say that. They mean that everything we do should be done to the glory of God. And well, I've got no disagreement there, but just this nagging sense that if everything is worship, well, then perhaps nothing is worship. Here's what I mean we've really not defined anything yet. And more so, what do we call that thing when we want to sing and express our adoration to God? You see, if everything is worship, well, we have no place in our theology in which we're called upon to set apart something special, something sacred. See, I love how A.W. Tozer defined worship. He said, what is worship? Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of the most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father which art in heaven. Indeed. Worship is an expression of emotion, of wonder, of delight, of passionate focus, and an overwhelming appreciation of the worthiness of our God and and to thank Him that He is our God. Of course, it includes a focus on everything from confession of our sins and and a delightful expression of our confidence in the promises that He has made to His children in the cross, and also allaying our requests before Him because we know that He cares for us, but above all other things. It's the opportunity at gazing at majesty and being overwhelmed. It should not, therefore, surprise us that when John tells us that he saw a door standing open in heaven and that he gazed at the one who was seated on the throne and that extending from the throne is a sea of glass with thunder and lightning emanating forth from the one who lives forever and that around the throne are seated 24 elders, that what happens next is the only thing that can happen next—worship. And so, as we come to the last half of Revelation 4, we come upon the first example of worship found in the book of Revelation. You know, as I've stated repeatedly, even if we as Christians disagree with one another on the interpretation of some of the details of Revelation, we would be beggared if we did not allow the book of Revelation to expand our view of the greatness of our God. And so with this in mind, let's allow John's vision of the throne room of God to move us to worship. I'm reading Revelation 4, halfway through verse 6, down to the end of the chapter, to verse 11. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Now I wonder if you've ever been to a new church and afterwards, a friend has asked you what it was like and you're left describing your experience of worship. In the process, you tell how many people were there, if you recognized anyone, and then what the experience of worship was like. See, in essence, you can imagine John communicating to the seven churches, and as he does, he tells them he saw the Lord seated on a throne and that he witnessed worship. And with that, he tells them what it was like. The first impression that we get from John's description of worship is he tells us who is there. See, in my last message, I tried to give an explanation for the 24 elders that were seated around the throne. So let me say that as far as I'm aware, there are at least 13 different views of their identity. And I, for my part, believe it's quite likely that they refer to the highest rank of the angelic host, the commanders of the Lord's armies. Others believe that they are representatives of the church and still others of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, representatives of the whole people of God through the ages. But however you understand them, please also notice that they're not the only ones who are before the throne. We see here that all around the throne, surrounding the throne, are four living creatures. Now, John doesn't tell us whether they're constantly circling the throne, flying, constantly in motion, or whether they're stationary. But we need to imagine, if we can, four very similar, yet four very different creatures. See, the most striking thing about them is that they have many eyes. John mentions this feature twice, first in verse 6, where he says that they have eyes in front and behind, and then in verse 8, where he says they are full of eyes around and within. So I suspect the reference to having eyes within means that the eyes are also under their wings. You know, as strange as all that sounds, he adds to that that they have six wings, and we're left to imagine exactly how the wings could be distributed on their bodies, Now, those of you who are biblically literate will immediately recognize some features here. Isaiah 6 is the chapter in the Bible where Isaiah describes his first calling into the ministry of a prophet. He says that he was in the temple, and then suddenly he sees the Lord seated upon his throne. And in many ways, Isaiah's vision of God mirrors exactly what John saw. And then Isaiah describes what seems to have been the same creatures that John sees. I'm reading Isaiah 6, 1 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, John doesn't mention the details of two wings covering their faces and two covering their feet. I think, in Isaiah, the seraphim are covering their faces because even though they minister in the presence of God, and yet God is so altogether glorious that they can't look at Him directly. The covering of their feet is a way of saying in the ancient Near Eastern world, it is an expression of modesty. And so what Isaiah saw was the creatures with heads bowed in humility before the awesome presence of God. And so it seems to me that these creatures are so created that they can, with their powerful wings, move very quickly, but at the same time, they're ideally suited to express worship. And that makes sense, because it would seem that these beings are closer to the throne than the 24 elders, and so it seems to me that their importance can't be underestimated. They no doubt have a very special function as they relate to God. I'm giving the impression that these beings have a place before the throne of great importance. But still, what do we make of their eyes? See, Isaiah doesn't mention the eyes. But that has led some Bible teachers to believe that we might be speaking of different beings, that is, the ones in Isaiah versus the ones in Revelation. Well, perhaps. The being in Isaiah's visions are different from the ones in John's. Well, perhaps. But still, the similarities are striking. See, what's also fascinating is that the prophet Ezekiel also mentions some very fascinating beings before the throne. You know, it would take too long to describe Ezekiel's vision, which is both in chapter 1 and chapter 10 of that book, but suffice it to say that he also describes what he calls the likeness of four living creatures. But Ezekiel's four living creatures, although they're similar to what John saw, have some very interesting differences. Ezekiel also describes the sound of wings, like the sound of many waters, a great rushing sound as they flew, and in any case... We're back to what John saw and the fact that they're covered with eyes. It seems to me that the eyes give the impression that they're always alert, that nothing happens before the throne that they don't see, and that they're constantly aware of all things that are happening and thus are able to respond to God immediately. So these are highly intelligent beings who observe the ways of God and because of that always know the appropriate way to respond to the will of him who sits on the throne. There's so much more we can say about these creatures and then about the worship that happens in heaven, but at the very least, I would hope that we would take the time to reflect on God's creation. At this moment, those of us who live on earth have but a small appreciation of the vastness and the diversity and the complexity of all that God has created. There are beings in God's creation that we know nothing of. And so it would seem, if I'm right, among the angelic band are 24 elders or commanders of God's army and then four seraphim who are highly esteemed among the beings
0: created by God. Let me share with you a few comments from our listeners. This is one of the most insightful and fulfilling studies I have ever heard in my life. Another, I'm a pastor and I've been listening to Back to the Bible podcast since the fall. I'm very thankful to be able to listen to the daily podcast and have my own life and ministry enriched with excellent teaching that Dr. Newfeld provides. And thank you at Back to the Bible for all the amazing work you do. You've helped my walk more than you'll ever know. What a great encouragement. And it reminds us to say thank you. Your prayers and financial support, your commitment, makes all our Bible teaching ministries possible and available to anyone thirsting to hear. Please continue to partner with us. Together, lives are being encouraged and changed. Offer your generous support today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Whoever the four living creatures are, they are among the highest order of angels who surround the throne of God. In John's vision, each of the four have great similarities, and yet one thing that marks them as different are their faces. Now, in Ezekiel's visions, the creatures had four sides to them, and one side had a human face, the second the face of a lion, the third an ox, and the fourth an eagle. But in John's vision, each of the four had a different face, but the four faces mirror exactly what Ezekiel saw. Now, there are a number of explanations that have been attempted to explain what the four different faces represent. You know, one of the oldest explanations is that they actually represent the four Gospels in our Bible, that of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But, you know, I, for my part, I'm just not convinced by that explanation. See, the foremost reason is that there is nothing in that scene that comes even close to suggesting that as the explanation. And I think we do well if, when we study the Bible, we discipline ourselves not to bring an outside explanation and impose it onto the text. But what can their different faces actually mean? Probably we might be on safe ground if we admit that we're just not sure. But we might notice that the worship that follows puts a great deal of emphasis on what God has done in nature. The throng before the throne will say, you have created all things. And so it seems to me that the faces of the creatures are an expression or a constant reflection before God of what he has made. The first creature has the face of a lion, which represents the greatest among the wild animals, and the second, the face of an ox, which seems to represent a great domesticated animal, and the third, the eagle, the great flying animals, and the fourth, a man, which is the crown of God's creation. See, there's an old rabbinic saying which said, The mightiest among the birds is the eagle, the mightiest among the domestic animals is the bull, the mightiest among the wild beasts is the lion, and the mightiest among them all is man. And that's, I think, probably the best explanation of these four living creatures. They're a reflection of the majesty of the God who has created all things. But let's move beyond who's there at the worship service, and let's begin to concentrate on the actual worship itself. John says that day and night, the four living creatures never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now, however you understand those words— Please don't assume that these four creatures have no other function. For instance, if you go ahead to chapter 6, when the seals of the scroll are opened, the four living creatures are the ones who summon the horsemen to bring judgment to the earth. So, in chapter 6, we see them actually carrying out orders given by God. So, what do we make of the statement, Day and night they never cease to praise? Well, I think we should probably understand that phrase much in the same way that Paul, for instance, in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 8 says, with toil and labor, we worked night and day, he says. Now, he doesn't mean that's all he ever did. He means that that was his consuming focus. And that's how I understand the activity of those four living creatures. They never lose an opportunity to worship. But how then do they worship? Well, we notice that just like in Isaiah's vision, their words of adoration begin with holy, holy, holy. See, ascribing holiness to God seems to me to be the starting place of all worship. So, for instance, Psalm 111, verse 9, we read, Holy and awesome is His name. Psalm 24, verse 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in His holy place? Psalm 29, verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. I mean, we could go on and on, quoting verse after verse that invite us to worship and to ascribe holiness to our God. Holiness means two things. It speaks of God's purity, and it speaks of the fact that He is unlike all other things, set apart from everything. When we worship, we're saying, who's like the Lord? And we're announcing that no unclean thing can stand in his presence. Now, these four living creatures don't just say holy once. They repeat it three times. See, to say a matter twice or a double repetition, well, that adds emphasis. It's like saying, stop, pay attention. This is very important. But to say the matter three times is to state it in the superlative. It's, it's like saying infinite holiness. Holiness to a level that's beyond all boundaries. And so, as the worship in heaven begins, it begins by proclaiming the infinite holiness of the one who is seated on the throne, and then adds another attribute to God. He was and is and is to come. Now, this is the second time in this book that God's addressed in this way. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 8, where we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is to say, God has always existed. If we go back into the past, into eternity, there never was a moment when he did not exist. Before any of the creation existed, God has eternally existed in the past. And as we look into the future, into eternal ages yet to come, God right now exists there as well. But when we say God is the one who is, we add that God who is beyond time still exists in this present moment. He is intimately concerned with this moment in which we now live and gives it his full attention. And so reflecting on the eternal holiness of God and the eternal existence of God, both of the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down before him. And at this moment, the 24 elders who have crowns on their heads take them off and throw them before the throne and loudly proclaim, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, if I'm right about the identity of the 24 elders, that they are the commanders of the hosts of the Lord, his holy ones, then it's easy to see why they have crowns. They've been elevated by God to places of prominence among the angelic host. But when the time of worship comes, their prominence means nothing to them, for they are standing in the presence of infinite prominence, and all they can do is to abase themselves as much as is possible. See, I think this has application to our lives as we seek to worship. You know, as we've already seen already four times in Revelation. As Jesus has spoken to the seven churches, he has promised prominence to those who endure and to those who are faithful to the end. To the church of Smyrna, he said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so, a crown is promised to the faithful. And to the church of Thyatira, Jesus said, To the one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So the faithful are promised thrones as well. To the church of Philadelphia, he urges them, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And to the church of Laodicea, he said, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Indeed, the prominence that is promised the redeemed people of God, when all things are said and done, is a greater prominence than the one that is given the angelic host. And therefore, if the angelic host casts their crown before his throne, how much more will we? Indeed, the more we reflect on what happens before the throne room of God, the more we can see that when we catch a vision of the one who is seated on the throne, the more we wish to humble ourselves as we exalt him. It was Queen Victoria of England who said that she had a wish that when the kings and queens of the earth are gathered before the throne... She dreamt of being the first of the world's monarchs to step forward and then to fall down before the one who is seated on the throne and then to remove her crown and throw it before his throne and to cry out, you alone are worthy. Now, think about what Revelation 4 meant to these seven churches and then reflect on what it means to us today. You alone, O God, are worthy. Every impulse at pride is laid in ashes when God's people join the great angelic host and offer up our worship. Indeed, worship, true worship, is that impulse which puts to death our temptation to deny our Lord. To the beleaguered churches in Revelation, this is the vision they desperately need. Now, in Revelation chapter 4, the reason for worship is that God has created all things. The song of redemption, that he has redeemed his elect, is not yet sung at this time. The song of the angels is the song of joy for their creator. How much greater is our song? For we will sing of his creation, but human beings alone can sing the song of redemption. Worship is the greatest need that we have, for once we worship, all other things in all of creation are put in their rightful place. Worthy is our God.
0: John, you want to listen to this message and then you just want to worship our great God, don't you? Does this does this perhaps give us a framework for what worship should be within the church?
1: Oh, I think so. You know, the fascinating thing about this, as, as great and glorious as this worship is... It does not yet contain the song of redemption, which will come in the next chapter. And so I think, you know, our worship has to be even greater than the one that we find presented here, but it does present us with a marvelous framework. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to say that it's not possible to worship rightly and still hold on to our own pride. I think having worshipped every single worshipper of God is brought low and abased in his presence. We basically, in worship, watch our pride being crucified. There's nothing left to glory in ourselves and everything left to glory in God. And, you know, when God's people worship together, I just think that the the animosity that might exist between us begins to fade away because we see something greater than anything else, even the the wrongs and the hurt that we've done to each other. Uh, You know, worship just covers everything and gives us hope and courage as we face
0: the future he alone is worthy thanks so much john join us again on back to the bible canada leading you forward in your walk with jesus every day This month we're broadcasting volume one of Dr. Neufeld's newest series, The Triumph of the Lamb, A Study in Revelation. This is the first of four volumes to be broadcast over the next several months, and each time we want to offer you the newest volume at a very special price. So for the month of March, volume one of The Triumph of the Lamb, A Study in Revelation on CD is available for only $10. This 15 message volume covers Revelations chapter one to five, including an in-depth study of the seven churches. Discover the book of Revelation like never before. And please remember all our Bible teaching programs and resources are possible only because of your generosity. So consider an important ministry gift this month. Call us to order the Triumph of the Lamb or to offer a ministry donation at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.